You're listening to the Science Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. We're going to be talking in a moment to David Krakauer, who's the president of the Santa Fe Institute. And for those of you who are not familiar with the work of the Santa Fe Institute, it's a think tank and research institute here in Santa Fe, where I live and where I've been broadcasting from for a long time. And they look at something called complexity science, which is an interdisciplinary way of looking at the world that looks at science through the lens of complex systems. The question of what a simple system is versus what a complex system is can be, at least to me, summed up basically by the difference between a predictable mechanistic system and a continually evolving living system. So a predictable mechanistic system would be like your car or even a rocket, a space station. All of those, although they're complicated, they're not complex systems. Whereas even a cell or a minnow is squarely in the category of complexity. And this extends not only to life, but to ecosystems, to economies, to weather patterns, and things like that. So at the Santa Fe Institute, there are economists and archaeologists and biologists and ecologists and all kinds of people working together, which means that they have to actually learn to speak each other's language, which is a wonderful thing in science. I say this as a broadcaster who is continually trying to work my way through um, jargon sometimes. And the work they do is both interesting and applicable. David Krakauer is not only the president of the Institute, but a scientist and very much of a science communicator. And we will be talking today, kind of on a philosophical level, about limits in science, all kinds of different limits. And why don't we go straight to the conversation? I'm delighted now to welcome to the Radio Cafe scientist David Krakauer. He's president of the Santa Fe Institute. Welcome. Great to be with you. Good to be with you, as always. And we're here to talk about kind of a big, all-embracing thing, which is a concept, and the concept is limits. And so there are so many different kinds of limits in mathematics, in physics, in science, in ourselves, in our ability to understand things. You have been talking about, and we wanted to start with the idea of limits or the sort of original non-limit, which is infinity. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, SFI works on a whole variety of problems, and all of them are sort of founded in sort of mathematical and computational reasoning. And it's always been a challenge to sort of bring them all together. How do you relate all of these different areas? And it turns out that the whole idea of a limit is this very synthetic, unifying idea. Um, It's unifying in the sense of it represents how SFI likes to think about itself, right? I mean, we like to go to the limit of understanding, right? So it's got this sort of uh, interesting existential dimension. If you ask most people about limits, it's, it's that point that you cannot cross. It's a maximum. It's a minimum. It involves some danger, perhaps, or some risk to approach a limit. And so... That's a sort of a larger setting. But then it has this beautiful history, um, as you said, starting in maths and going all the way through to, you know, the limits of human intelligence and our relationships between 
with rather um, machines and artificial intelligence. So the idea of infinity is that there is no limit. Is that right? Well, no. So actually, yeah. So most, I would think, you know, most people's first exposure to a, a kind of a formal limit is in things like, you know, paradoxes, like Zeno's paradox, which is sort of Achilles and the tortoise. So this Achilles, you know, fleet of foot, starts a race after a tortoise. And the paradox was that when Achilles reaches the point that the tortoise is currently at, the tortoise has moved on, right? And then Achilles will move to the next point that the tortoise is at, and it will have moved on. And so in some sense, he never can reach it. And if you keep adding up all those tiny little increments, eventually it'll take infinite time. And the other version that Aristotle made very um, famous is the idea that to reach a target, you have to go halfway there first. So now that halfway point is a new target, and you have to go halfway there first again, and again, and again, and again. And if you sum up all those little halves, a half, you know, a quarter, an eighth, a sixteenth, a thirty-tooth, eventually it sort of takes infinite time. And it took mathematics to resolve that. And the formal area of inquiry is called the sum of a geometric series. And it turns out that if you add all those numbers together, all those little half of a half of a half type things, it doesn't go to infinity at all. It reaches a, a finite value, and a very small value, actually. And so we realize that a very counterintuitive fact about limits, that if you sum up an infinite number of things, out of that can pop out a finite thing, a number. There's also, I mean, in that particular example, a practical dimension, which is if you are going to a destination and you're halfway there and halfway there and halfway there, pretty soon you're one gazillionth of an inch from your destination, so you're, for all practical purposes, there. Well, it's interesting. Um, so it turns out it's a good example where a thought experiment that seems to suggest some kind of limit is proven to be actually misleading when you do the mathematics. And it shows you one of the perils of using human intuition and human language to reason about limits. It's one of the things that mathematics does, is it says, actually, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, that if you do it this way, the problem goes away. My favorite example, actually, you've talked about was infinity. So kids will always argue about what's the biggest number, right? It's like um, a gazillion. And another kid will say, a gazillion plus one, you know. And, uh, and it never ends, right? Because it's infinite. You can add a value. So infinity is this very weird thing. Is it real? Does it exist? Or is it just a kind of a, a concept? And a German mathematician called Cantor came along and actually showed not only is it real, but there are many different kinds of infinity. And it turns out that this very weird fact that infinity is equal to infinity plus one. They're the same value. And you can show that formula. It's totally counterintuitive. And so this generated a huge amount of consternation in the math communities because they didn't want infinity to be real. And he generated a whole universe of them. And so the infinity of the so-called counting numbers, naturals, one, two, three, four, five, is much smaller than the infinity of the real numbers, the numbers that can be expressed as fractions of whole numbers, much smaller. And so that area of math just changed the way we thought about a concept that formerly was just a kind of convenience and made it a, rea a reality. Is that reality real to non-mathematicians? Does it have any application to the rest of us? Oh, it's actually a very good question. Um, it has a reality in the sense that many technologies use limits to effectively make calculations tractable. 
And so it has a reality in the products you use. So, for example, uh, Newton famously created the calculus by assuming infinitesimals, things that are infinitely small. And the calculus is used now in everything, in calculating population growth, uh, putting landers on the moon. So it does have a practical value, even though it seems like a very esoteric idea. You said a moment ago that there are limits to how we think using human language, but that's all we've got. Well, right. So we create other kinds of languages, like mathematics, to sort of overcome our limits. But it turns out that there are these really deep foundational limits that we'll never overcome. The one that some of your listeners might have heard of is, is, is due to a German mathematician called Gödel. Uh, and it's called the Gödel Incompleteness Theorem. And Gödel said something really weird. He said that any formal system, language, um, mathematics, arithmetic, actually has built into it a limit, and that there are going to be statements you can make that you can never determine whether they're true or false. And it's inevitable. It's a foundational limit to reason. And the best example that people know, perhaps, is you know the liar paradox. Or the, and that goes like this. It says, this sentence is a lie. Well, that's a perfectly reasonable sentence. It's made out of syntactic rules, right, that everyone understands. But think about that sentence for a moment. This sentence is a lie. Well, if it's true that that sentence is a lie, then it's a lie, right? And if it's false that that sentence is a lie, then it's true. And so by just inspecting that sentence, you can't determine whether it's true or false. And it turns out that mathematics is full of statements you can make, and you can never determine whether they're true or false. And it's a deep foundational problem that shows you the ultimate limits of reason. And that idea, why does it matter, was extended by Alan Turing. Alan Turing of the imitation game fame, who was one of the inventors of the computer. He took that a little further and developed the idea of undecidability. He said, the, he asked the following question, um, if I give a computer a question, can I determine whether or not that computer will ever reach an answer in advance? So I don't have to waste its time. And it turns out that you can't, that there's a whole class of problems that are undecidable. You never can be certain that the computer will give you an answer. And that turns out to be really fundamental for us in the age of the intelligent machine, because it, it, it suggests that there are foundational limits to what any computational device can do. There are answers that you can show it could never reach. What kinds of questions are we talking about to which there are no answers? Yes, yeah, so it turns out they're kind of hard to get your brain around, which is another limit, limit of our thought. So the kinds of problems are very, typically very mathy. But one example would be, imagine a, a seashell pattern and imagine another pattern and another seashell. You could ask, is there a developmental path that would allow you to go from that pattern to the second pattern. And that can be represented formally. And it turns out that's undecidable, that you couldn't know. And in fact, a machine would never reach a conclusion. When you talk about going from one pattern to another, are you talking about the form, like the spiral form could of the seashell? could be a spiral form. The, the particular domain in which this was worked out is called the game of life. And this is a little cellular automata, a little mathematical structure that produces patterns like spirals and little grids of cells that are on and off, a little bit like SimCity. So the way you solve these problems is in a very rarefied mathematical setting, but it's exactly the kind of thing you're describing. I mean, how do you go from one pattern to another? It seems logical to ask, could I get there from here? 
And it turns out in many cases, it's undecidable. You could never know. I mean, but when you're even asking the question, are you talking about evolution? Like the evolution from one it could life be. form it, to another? It or? could be. It, and it's not to say, right, that it couldn't happen. It just means that when you ask the computer the question, is it possible? The computer will churn away forever and never come back and say, yes. And that's what undecidability means. When people think about truth and lies, they're usually not thinking about sentence like this sentence is a lie. They're thinking about, officer, I did not kill that man. Yeah, so that's a that's interesting, and we'll get to that. And that's um, about evidence, right, and about how much you can reliably measure. So to get at that kind of thing, we have to move. We have to move away from the sort of weird, sterile, rarefied domain of math into physics, say. <laughs> and uh, which many people think, wait, wait a minute, that's also very far from evidence. But that's, again, where these limits appear, which defy intuition. And famously, right, Albert Einstein in 1905, showing that the maximum speed that any object could move was the speed of light. That's a foundational limit. So in communicating with another planet, there is a maximum velocity that you could transmit a message, right? And it's so weird when you explore that limit. And one of the things that Einstein's discovered at that limit is as you approach the speed of light, time slows down. So that at about 95% of the speed of light, you're moving at about one-third the clock speed that you were before. And if you try and cross that limit, you move backwards in time. So that's a totally bizarre idea that's been tested and shown to be, to the best of our knowledge, true. And that's a little closer to the world you're describing than the world of mathematics. And it has all sorts of implications for communication across the universe. And then it gets even weirder when you move down to the quantum mechanical realms, right? Looking inside an atom. And then all intuition breaks down. Those kinds of limits, tiny limits, you get weird phenomena like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And so, for example, it doesn't strike you as strange that if you measured the position of an object moving a, a tennis ball, you could also measure its velocity. But it turns out that in the quantum realm, that's not true. That is, if you measure the position, then you can't measure the velocity as effectively. So all these odd limits appear when you move in the case of relativity to very big objects or very fast objects, or in the case of quantum mechanics to very tiny things. Uh, but that's still the world of physics, which is close to mathematics. There is this principle that the act of observing changes the object that's observed. Does that work on a macro level? So if somebody is under surveillance, does that change them because they're being observed even though it's not to their knowledge? Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. So this uncertainty relation that says that you measure one thing and you become more ignorant about another is foundational at the scale of an electron. Right. But you can ask the same question, as you said, you know, with intelligent agents that know they're being observed, does a measurement change the behavior for very, very different reasons, right? For sure, the same kind of phenomenon exists. But in the physical case, it's true everywhere in the universe at all times. And in the case of societies, it would presumably vary according to your own character and paranoia and, and political interests. What does it mean to be, I mean, at the, at the micro level, yeah. what does it mean to be observed? 
the human eyeball? It means that you have to expend energy to make a measurement. And, and the sort of intuition for that is that think about the human eyeball. That it works because a photon bounces off an object. And it turns out if you're very tiny and you bounce a photon off an object, you move it, <laughs> you know. So the act of measurement itself perturbs uh, the system that you're studying. Uh, whereas, of course, if I observe you, because photons are essentially they're massless, the effect of the observation has a minimal impact on your behavior. But once you get to tiny, tiny things, all of a sudden, just that teeny little measurement can cause it to deviate. And that, that's why. And if it's being observed by a salamander? Exactly the same, because their eyes, like ours, depend on photons uh, for perception. And so it would be true even if it was being observed by an atom, right? Uh, Can atoms observe? Well, that's a very, actually, well, that's an interesting philosophical question. Um, and it points us towards the limitation of language. I mean, if an atom is aware of, the, of another atom, this in quantum mechanics is called entanglement, when one atom knows something about another atom, um, you could call that observation. Can atoms know? In a very simple way, yes. I would say yes, because when atoms are in, or particles are entangled, they become correlated in their behavior. And so by changing the behavior of one particle, you change the behavior of another. You could call that a very simple form of knowledge. What about a person who's blind, who's observing something? They observe through hearing. Again, you know, because we, we know that all of this comes down to physics, right? So um, it's a sound wave. That's what we're talking about, physics. We are. So it has pressure behind it and energy behind it. And so I think most people are used to thinking of a measurement as being sort of non-intrusive, right? And But the fact is, if you think about it carefully, any measurement requires the expenditure of energy. And if the object is small enough relative to the energy of the measurement, it will be perturbed. So that brings us to something that probably some of our listeners or many of our listeners have heard of, which is something called the butterfly effect. And I think the cliche goes, if a butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo, there's a tsunami and or there's a tidal wave in California or yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is kind of intriguing. And so I think a lot of people would say, yeah, yeah, right. All those special cases, tiny little particles going at nearly the speed of light, as you said, you know, what does that have to do with me, right? Um, but it turns out that even at the scale that we live and the weather system lives and financial systems live and ecosystems live, there are weird limits. And the phenomena of chaos is one of them. And chaos is the following, right? It says that there are systems that are not strange in any way. They're classical. They behave like billiard balls, in other words, nothing weird about them. But they sometimes have a behavior that looks nearly random. Now, if you could measure absolutely with total precision the state of the system, then you could predict it exactly. So, for example, if you're playing billiards or something, if I knew exactly what the irregularities on the surface of the table were and how much force you placed on the ball and what the coefficient of friction was, everything, right? If you knew all of that perfectly, then you could predict perfectly. But it turns out that you can't measure perfectly because to measure perfectly requires infinite resources, right? Because you have to spend a long time measuring it or invest a lot of energy in it. And by that time, another variable might have changed. Well, there's, right. And so if you, 
have infinite resources. Imagine you want to study a distant star. Well, you have to build a really big telescope, right? And it costs you a lot of money. And the more perfect the measurement, the more money you have to expend, the more resources. And so chaos is inevitable because the unpredictability could never be perfectly minimized because you don't have infinite resources to spend on measurement. And so there's a foundational limit here because there's a limit to your resources. It's an odd idea, but... So, what does that have to do with the butterfly? Well, the butterfly effect is this. It says that in a system like the weather, there are these tiny little variations in pressure, for example, that can amplify to cause storms and tornadoes and hurricanes. And if you could measure down at the level of a teeny-weeny little butterfly wing flap, maybe you could predict what the weather would be like four days later. But there's just no way that you're going to have the resources and the time to measure absolutely the, everything that happens on the surface of the Earth. But is the movement of that butterfly or some other little tiny movement that seems insignificant, really, is it possible that that will affect a big weather system? It can. I mean, sometimes it won't. And that's why chaos has to be thought about carefully. Not everything is chaotic. Many systems are not. And so you can measure very imprecisely and still predict but some are, and some elements of the weather are. And so the way to think about the butterfly effect is that there are certain systems. Your heartbeat, for example, that is chaotic, and they have butterfly-like effects, and there are other systems that are not. And those are the ones that we predict well, and that's why we're able to live as we do, and civilizations are sustained. Because if everything was a butterfly effect, it would be like living in a totally random environment. What do we predict well? Uh, it's interesting, not much, it turns out. We're very good at what we would call at SFI simple systems, right? So not the quantum necessarily, although we can do some good predictions there. But if you go to the large scale, the orbits of planets, gravitational waves, the future state of the sun, the internal state of a you know nuclear reactor, we're pretty good at that kind of stuff. But when it comes to complex systems of the kind that we study, essentially adaptive systems, the economy, the human brain, human history, well, then all of a sudden all bets are off. And it turns out they're even harder to predict than quantum mechanics and chaotic systems. And we need an entirely new kind of science to think about predicting complex systems. And that's, in some sense, what we try to do. How's it going? Well... Uh, pretty good. And so one way to think about this is, and this is maybe not intuitive to people, is you have to choose the scale, the right scale at which to predict. For example, I can't predict exactly what you will do, right? I won't predict Mary Charlotte's behavior. But if I look at enough people, you can sort of predict what they'll do. And that's, you know, for example, if I increase the price of a good, chances are you'll buy it less often right? Now, any one individual might continue buying it because they love it, but, you know, on average. And so what complexity science has done is it's tried to find these averages at which you can do good prediction. What are some actual specific realms in which you're able to do, to do that? that? Right. So one, and this is an interesting one, is predicting the lifespan of an organism. So the ultimate limits to longevity. So any given individual is going to vary, right, um, in how long they live. But it turns out that you can predict the average of a large group 
by looking at their mass. And so it turns out that the larger you are, the longer you tend to live as a species. Not an individual, but individuals vary a lot. And so an elephant uh, will live longer than a mouse. And so at the level of the average mass or the average size, you can predict quite well. But things get really complicated when you look within at a smaller scale. So, for example, I actually went to the vet recently here in Santa Fe, and our cat had a um, respiratory infection. And our vet said to us, wait a minute, I've heard about you guys at the Santa Fe Institute working on longevity, and I can tell you you're wrong. And I said, why? And she said, well, if you look at dogs... Yeah, I was just going to say. Right? It's the opposite, right? Bigger dogs don't live as long as smaller ones. Exactly. So long-lived dogs are terriers and chihuahuas, and short-lived dogs are like Great Danes and Afghans. And I said, you're right. And so, and the explanation for that is, this is interesting, it's the difference between the size at which you're born and the size at which you mature. And so the smaller that difference is, the longer you live. And so a chihuahua doesn't grow very much. And so all of its energy can be put into repair. Whereas a large dog has to put all of its energy into growth and not into repair. And so these limits are really intriguing because you have to consider all sorts of factors. Right, right. We're talking to David Krakauer about limits in science and mathematics and logic. And what about evolution? I mean, it seems like evolution is one of those things where from the tiniest little cells that came to being originally who knows how, really, we have this incredible diversity of life, which seems limited only by the physical, environmental circumstances of that life. Yeah, life is a complicated issue when you're talking about limits. And one question you can ask about limits to evolution is how long a species lasts before it goes extinct. And it turns out there's a very interesting pattern here. So most species go extinct very fast, and very few species last tens to hundreds of millions of years. Crocodiles. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, that's actually interesting. What does, right? What lasts longer than 100 million years? And it turns out that if you want to remain around for a long time in evolution, there are two things that you should do. You should become aquatic and you should become an invertebrate. <laughs> right? That's the kind of key to a long life. I mean, a long evolutionary life. So, for example, the horseshoe crab, right, that you can see on the, on the, on the shores of New Jersey by Atlantic City, has been around for about 450 million years. And so evolutionary lineages are very interesting because they have a what's called a fat-tailed distribution of lifespans. And trying to understand where that comes from is really a mystery for us. If you hadn't looked at a few of these key organisms, you would have thought the limit was 100 million years. And then you go and discover these things, and they say, no, you're, you're wrong. And the key to understanding them, by the way, is actually similar to the key to understanding how long companies last. So most companies, and this is, again, research that's done at SFI, most companies are dead within 10 years. And it's very rare that a company lasts 100, let's say. But if you want to be a very long-lived company, here's what you do. You go to Japan, and you open an inn. So they're the horseshoe crabs of companies. And you can ask, what's similar about a Japanese inn and a horseshoe crab? And what's similar is that the ecological environment in which they live is very unchanged for long periods of time. So the number one predictor of longevity and evolution is the stability of your environment. And environments that change very quickly 
tend to produce these very short-lived lineages. So what's the difference between the environment of a horseshoe crab and the environment of a fish? Yeah, no, it's interesting. And one clue is that you tend to find them in very restricted areas. And so whereas most fish have a much more extensive range. And so it's, again, somewhat unknown, but the clues are aquatic, invertebrate, an environment that's not changed for hundreds of millions of years, and quite restricted, which in some sense makes them vulnerable, right? Because they're not very good generalists. Uh, but if they survive that challenge and the environment doesn't change much, then they can persist over evolutionary eons. Which, of course, brings up the question of, is longevity really a value? I mean, maybe horseshoe crabs aren't as interesting as <laughs> people or monkeys or... Well, you and know, maybe Japanese inns aren't as interesting as, you know, a, a movie company. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. You know, evolution doesn't care that much about what is interesting, right? In other words, that's a very subjective question. A very interesting one, by the way, what that even means. And it's true that human beings love dynamism. We love change and we love diversity. Some of us do. And so the... And dynamism, change, and diversity characterize evolution. They do. In some kinds of evolution, right? A lot of it. And that's why most lineages don't last long, for those exactly those reasons. But there are these little pockets of unchanging environments. But your question is kind of a deep one when it comes to human longevity and limits to humans. Because why are we so obsessed with immortality? And it's a deep question. And we know that there are physiological limits to our lifespan. Not just limits to how long we live, but how long we can live well, which is probably the more important question. And one of the things that we've been discovering over the last few decades is that you can live well a very long time. And so there are extraordinary individuals who are running sub four hour marathons into their mid 80s. In fact, I mean, one prominent individual who runs faster than 80% of the U.S. Marine Corps' marathoners, right? And the question that we've been asking here is, what are the limits of a good life? Not just the limits of life, but I think a more important question, which is how long can you remain cognitively lucid? How long can you remain uh, metabolically fit? Uh, and that raises all sorts of different questions than the desire for immortality. Well, there's the question also of how long can an individual live? But then the horseshoe crab example is how long can the species live? And that's another big question it is for another humans. Big, it is. And I, you know, that one generates a lot of debate. And where the paleontologists and ecologists jump into this debate is to say, maybe it's not the species level that we should be concerned with, but the longevity of genetic diversity itself. So if you had a group of very closely related species that are genetically very similar, perhaps it doesn't matter if one of those species goes extinct. So this has all sorts of implications for conservation, right? Because what should we be focusing on? Should we be focusing on the individual species, which seems totally reasonable? Or should we be focusing on the, the if you like, the store of genetic diversity? And so, again, you know, these are complicated questions for us to, to grapple with, and there's no clear answer. And of course, if we weren't here, the question of what should we be focusing on would be a non-question. I mean, human beings are the ones who are doing the damage, even as we're trying to conserve. If we were to 
control our population, for example, a whole lot. Well, true. I mean, and of course, through history, there have been mass extinction events when giant meteoroids have struck the surface of of the Earth and and extinguished significant percentages of life, (laughs) rather unfortunately. Of course, we've become a giant meteoroid ourselves, which is a problem, and we need to, to reckon with that. But you do it does raise an interesting question, right, about machines, because now that we've created, if you like, a new kind of species, an intelligent machine, or at least we're creating one, that is capable of worrying about its own longevity, and perhaps even worrying about our destructive impulses, and might even have the power to do something about it, right? And so there's a whole new debate that's arising through a new kind of mind uh, that we've invented um, that is capable of having exactly the the kinds of thoughts you described. Tell us more about this machine. I mean, are we talking about artificial intelligence computers? Are these computers that look something like laptops? I mean, metal things with wires and circuit (laughs) boards in them? Yes, I think so. I mean, this takes us back to Alan Turing. We talked about that first limit of what a computer can and cannot do. Uh, the, the idea of undecidability, you know, and we've been building and even, you know, the ideas of, you know, girdle, you know, if, if you build a formal system, will it produce paradoxes? And, and we've created formal systems now that can reason. And, and I am talking about solid state devices. Maybe they're quantum computers, but they'll be essentially made of as you, inorganic materials, I guess. Might they be made of organic materials? They would be, but I think that's a slightly different objective. One is, can we synthesize life? It's more the Frankenstein idea in our own image or in the image of life, organic life, and with all its limitations. Or should we be building an intelligence that's not necessarily living in the sense that we think of it, that doesn't have the same limits as us? I mean, they could live forever. And they could have almost infinite capacity in memory. And that's what our iPhones do for us now already, right? But that can be concerned about their own futures. I think of this, there was an example that was in the news when the first iPad came out. And a young Chinese man sold a kidney to buy an iPad. And there was a lot of controversy about that. Everybody thought he was nuts, but he really wanted an iPad and that's that's all he had. And when you think about how many generations of iPads have come out since then and how the one he had is obsolete now and he'll never get his kidney back, there is something in a way a lot more persistent about biological life than about these devices. I mean, you can say they have a kind of immortality, but they're made of non-self-repairing materials, unlike us. Yeah, that's a very deep point. And so um, I'm sure that many people have heard talk of the singularity, this idea that um, at some point we could, in, in, in essence, download ourselves right onto a very fancy hard drive and the limitations of our own soft organic matter would be overcome. And But you make a very good point. And I often say to people, will you download yourself onto Windows 10, right? Or, or, you know, Windows 3 or Mac OS Sierra, which you know in five years' time will be obsolete and you won't even be able to read files off it. So you may... What's interesting here is the aging of software itself. So software ages really quickly. In fact, it ages more quickly than companies. And in the future... One of the big discussions that we'll be having about limits is how do the limits of life, of minds, interact with the limits 
of hardware and software. And it's that intersection that we really care about. There's also, I remember talking to one of the first uh, video artists who really brought video into the realm of art, and she was saying that all the equipment on which she made her first art was not only obsolete, but you can't get it anymore. You can't get it to work anymore. Whereas people who were painting with egg tempera 500 years ago, those paintings still survive. Those techniques still survive. Absolutely. I mean, I've written about this, actually. I often make a distinction between the silicone chip, which we all know powers our machines, and the silicate chip, these cuneiform stone tablets that you find in the Fertile Crescent. Yeah. And they've been around for many thousands of years, right? Whereas you can't even read the, the code that you wrote on your word processor 10 years ago. Yeah. And so there's this very interesting trade-off between durability, um, as you said, the, end, the egg tempura and the um, tempura, and the, um, <laughs> that's something that you eat. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't last very long. And, uh, you know, and the amount of information you can store and the speed with which you can circulate it so that there's a trade-off here so you can use your computer to store a lot of information um, you can send it to lots of people very quickly but it won't last very long or you can write it down on a piece of paper in ink or even better you can carve it on the surface of stone but the amount of information you can store will be very small and and this looks like a really interesting limit a trade-off between magnitude and persistence and then the question of I mean, we know that we're living in an era where there is far more information available in our phones or through our phones than anybody, than any one person or any one group of people can possibly comprehend. Yeah. It is far bigger. I mean, there's no such thing as a Renaissance man who can sort of like yeah. get it all, right? So what is the deep use of this information compared to what we have from Plato and Aristotle or yeah. stone tablets? Yeah, this is really gets to one of the most interesting of all limits, which is the limits of understanding. What we've discovered uh, with these computers over the last several years is that they overcome the limits of prediction that we have. So they're much better at predicting because they have all these data sets better than us at predicting. But they do it with these huge models, with tons of data. And we don't understand how they work. And they certainly don't understand how they work either. And we're trading off one limit, the limit to what we can predict, the limit to what we control, which machines seem to have pushed out, with this limitation of understanding. And society actually, especially in science, this is a very big deal in my world, is now wrestling with this question of, what do we value more? Do we value prediction and control more? In which case, understanding is second fiddle. Or do we value understanding more, going back, as you said, to Aristotle and Plato and so on, that weren't very good at predicting, right? And I think what will happen is that the world will sort of split. There will be areas where we value prediction and control more. So, for example, if there's an epidemic and you really want to control it and you want to generate a vaccine that reduces the spread then you're going to worry about prediction, right? You'll say, no, I want to predict and control. You know, forget understanding for a moment. We have to control this damn thing, right? But there'll be other domains of human reason, of ethics, in relation to, say, autonomous vehicles, where we'll say, you know what? I want to know why that car decided to run over those three people instead of stop at the traffic light. And that's where understanding will be more important. So I think we have a discussion 
ahead of us to make decisions which will be very complex. David Krakauer is president of the Santa Fe Institute. They're on the web at santafe.edu. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Science Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. And definitely check out our website, scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter, at Radio Cafe MC, and at facebook.com slash radiocafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at steadynetworks.com. And their parent company is the fabulous Dotfoil Computer Services, where I've been getting my computer fixed for many years. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.